Well, welcome. It's good to be here with you today. I'm glad you're here. I know it's a bit warm, but we are in the presence of God and we're with God's people. So welcome. And once again, thank you for being here. Our scripture reading today is a very familiar passage. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 14 through 16. And this is what we read. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that you may see, uh, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit and joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And Lord, long before any one of us ever even gave you a thought, um, you loved us before we were born. You loved us before this world was made. You loved us and you knew what you would do to save us, that you would send your son into our world to become one of us and yet remain without sin, though he was tempted in every way that we are. And so he was able to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what you did, Lord Jesus, on that cross, when you took our sins in your body. And because of that act, Lord, we are forgiven and we have eternal life. We have a relationship with you. Once we put our faith in you, Lord, and we belong to you both now and forever. And so for us who know you, Lord, it has been good to be in your presence. It's been good to worship you in song and also through prayer. And now, Lord, we want to worship you by listening to hear what you have to say to us. I ask, Lord, that you would allow me to simply disappear behind the cross of Jesus Christ so that he and he alone would be exalted in our midst and that your people would hear your voice and your word today and that they would embrace what you say, put it into practice in their own lives. And it's in that most wonderful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You are the light of the world. And that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And since that you includes me, I, for one, would dismiss it, except for who said it. Jesus said it, and so I know that in some sense it's true. But when I look at myself, I don't see it. I don't see much light. But then I know a little Bible. <laughs> and I know that Jesus lives in me, and he has ever since I came to him in faith. I know that he can live through me. And I understand that I reflect his light 
like the moon reflects the sun, and how glad I am that it is so. And yet, even then, I don't do even that perfectly. Sometimes I block the light like a full solar eclipse, and then birds stop their singing, figuratively speaking. I also know something about you. I know that you are like me. I know that you can reflect God's light to the world around you, maybe even better than me, but you too can get in the way of his light. And that's the sad state that we find ourselves in. We are saved. We are children of God. And we want to be all his all the time. We want to live for him. But we get in our own way. And you know what I mean, don't you? We know. But so does God. He knows. And he understands. And because he both knows and understands, he's made a promise. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us and to continue the good work that he has begun in us. And we are glad for it. Today's story from the book of Acts is an encouragement to people like us. We see people overcoming. And when we see that, we understand that God is at work through them, even if it doesn't say so specifically. Our text today comes again from chapter 16 of Acts, verses 16 through 39. And if you have your Bibles, won't you join me there? Last week, we saw how Paul and Silas and their companions had gone to the place of prayer. And in this passage that we discover, they continued to go there, even though Lydia had opened her home to them as a meeting place. They went there so that they could continue to engage any Jew who showed up there. Those who had not already come to Jesus when they first heard about him from Paul and Silas and the others. But also to talk with other Jews who had arrived in the city in the meantime. Or who may have been unable to come, uh, not come that first Sabbath. And the context tells us that Paul and Silas made that trip daily. They made the visits there daily. And, and that too makes sense. The Jew who could not attend a worship service for one reason or another would look for a synagogue or a place of prayer. And some religious Jews might even go to the synagogue daily. And lacking that, they would go to the place of prayer daily. The story we're looking at this morning is a unit. But it's made up of episodes, and I'm calling those episodes movements. And there are three of them, three movements. And there in Philippi, sometime very shortly after that first Sabbath there, when Lydia had given her heart to Jesus, their adventure continues to unfold in movement number one. Verse 16 sets the stage for us. And we read, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, we don't have a lot of information here, but what we have enables us to make some deductions. To begin with, simply, this is one of, another one of those what theologians call the we passages. It says, we were going to the place of prayer. 
See, Luke wrote the book of Acts along with the gospel that bears his name. And those two books were intended to be a set, volume one and volume two. And the author tells us clearly in his writing that he had researched the things that he was writing about. He wasn't present for most of those things. He wasn't there with the shepherds on the hillside when the angels announced the birth of Christ, or, or he wasn't with Paul on the Damascus Road. But sometimes in Acts, he was there. And we know from this passage, and ones like it, that Luke was there because he says, we did this or that. So we know for certain that Paul and Silas and Luke were there because they're all referred to by name or specifically uh, mentioned somewhere in this passage. But the next verse tells us there were others there too, one of which was almost certainly Timothy. We can also say a few things about the slave girl herself. This group, Paul and Silas and the rest, was on their way to the place of prayer when they met the slave girl. They weren't at the place of prayer. They met her before they got there. So this girl was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And yet, evidently, even though she was a slave girl, she had a great deal of freedom. And we can infer that because she appears to be out on her and about on her own. Uh, she's not under the direct supervision of her owners. And in the next verse, we discover that she follows Paul and Silas on that day and on the subsequent days. And for, well, we don't know how many days this all went on that she followed them around the city. But on that first encounter, they either knew or learned that she was a slave girl that she had a spirit by which she predicted the future, and that she made a lot of money for her owners. Now, nothing is said about the accuracy of her predictions. I just want to kind of say this as an aside. As it is today, many people um, pay to have someone tell them what's going to happen to predict the future. Maybe they go to a psychic or a medium, or maybe they have their palm read, or someone buys a horoscope. And often those predictions are vague enough that when something remotely resembling it happens, the person thinks it's a fulfillment of that prediction. But this girl's predictions may have been much more accurate because of the spiritual component. She had a spirit. And most of us would identify that spirit as unclean and we would be right. And Paul and Barnabas would have understood that too. The next verse tells us, I think, how their first meeting came about. Verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. I want you to imagine what that would have been like. They meet this slave girl and she starts following them, shouting out to everyone about them. And it went on for many days, as the next verse reveals. But notice this, what this slave girl is saying. These men are servants of the Most High God. And they are telling you the way to be saved. And both of those things were true. Paul and Silas were servants of God. And they were telling people how to be saved. And someone who didn't know better might think that this was pretty great advertising. I mean, this servant girl was known by everyone in Philippi and the surrounding area. She was known to know things. She could predict the future. And you couldn't ignore her. She was loud. You couldn't help but hear her. She was shouting, the text tells us. 
She was getting the word out to everyone. But Paul is not happy about any of this, as we see in verse 18. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And in that moment, the Spirit left her. What was it that annoyed Paul so much that he finally broke and put a stop to it? Well, part of the reason was who she was. Not that she was a Greek. That's not the problem. And it wasn't because she was a slave. In fact, a great percentage of Christians were slaves in those days. So it's not that. And it certainly has nothing to do with the fact that she was a girl nor that she was young. It was because of the spirit that had hold of her. Like Jesus, Paul didn't want that kind of testimony. And when the evil spirit stated who Jesus was, he shut them up. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want someone like uh, Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or Stalin or Mussolini or Hitler saying, that Larry is a pretty good guy. You wouldn't want that either, would you? That's not the kind of testament or acknowledgement that anyone wants. In fact, not being liked by that kind of people could almost be worn as a badge of honor. But why did the unclean spirit do this here and, and when Jesus walked the earth? I think it's because the presence of Jesus, his holiness, his goodness, was just so powerful. And in this case, the Holy Spirit was so strong in Paul and the others that evil spirits couldn't help but declare the truth. Just like if you were punched in the gut, you'd let out a loud, Ugh. So those spirits are hit with such power that the truth gets knocked out of them and into the open. You know, the day is coming. When everyone will proclaim that Jesus was his Lord. And you and I, we're going to do that with joy. But others will do it whether they want to or not. And for them, it'll be kind of like a cry of despair. They'll acknowledge the truth. They won't be able to do otherwise. But the real question here is, why did it take Paul so long to finally act? And that's an important question. But we're going to have to wait for the answer to a little later this morning. For now, let me simply tell you what happened after Paul cast out that unclean spirit from that slave girl. We read about it in verses 19 through 22. When our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept their presence. Now I want you to know, none of that was really happening. But why let the facts get in the way of a good accusation? Anyway, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, which is what happened. They were stripped, they were beaten, and then Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. They were considered the ringleaders. The rest of their company, Luke and Timothy and others, weren't bothered in any way. But from this point on, the story pretty much focuses on Paul and Silas. Which brings us to the second movement of the story. And it's a really familiar story to most Christians. Most young people 
first learn this story with a kind of summary of verses 23 and 24, but I'm going to read them to you. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received those orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. I suppose this was just about as bad as Paul and Silas thought it might be. Flogged severely in prison with their feet in stocks. And so they were not comfortable. And to say that would be an understatement. And the prisons back then, they weren't nice either. Dungeon would be a better descriptor for it. But in spite of their circumstances, they do pretty well. So all of the kids here know that. As verse 25 tells us, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying (coughs) and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, we might have thought, after the trial and that severe beating and being shut up in the dark cell, they would have sought the escape of sleep. But no, they sing and they pray. And we certainly would have expected the other prisoners would be yelling at them to shut up so they could go to sleep. But that didn't happen either. Instead, they were all listening. Why? What was happening in the darkness of that prison? And that too is an important question, which we're going to come back to. But as the singing goes on, the unexpected happens. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At once, the prison doors all flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Ah, an earthquake leading to a daring nighttime escape, all provided by the Lord. You'd think, wouldn't you? Only no one escaped. Again, not what we would expect. Instead, we read in verse 27, and following the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. And he was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves. We're all here. You see, the old Roman way was if you failed at your job, and this jailer had been warned to guard the prisoners carefully, but if you failed, and you, then you and your whole family were forfeit. You would be killed, your family sold into slavery, and all your assets would be confiscated. But if you failed... And you took your own life. Your family was spared and they could keep your property. And that was why that jailer was about to take his own life. But but the prisoners were all there and accounted for. And the jailer was kept alive by a shout from Paul. The story's not over, though, as any great school student knows, because the jailer and his family all became Christians, verses 30 and 32, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out asked and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. The jailer put his faith. Thank you. The jailer put his faith in Jesus that night. And what a night it was. (laughs) He had heard the singing and the prayers too before he fell asleep. The faith of the Christian shone like a light in that dark place. And that, together with the strangeness of the prisoners not escaping, along with the 
kind of omen or sign of an earthquake that would open prison doors and break prison chains. All of it brought the jailer to his knees and he was saved. So was his whole family, as verse 33 and following says. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately, he and his whole household were baptized. The jailer brought him into his own house and he set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. It is just possible, the Greek allows for it, the household might have referred to the entire prison population, which would have been relatively small, but still not just his family. There could have been a real revival in that jailhouse that night. That's such a familiar story, and yet it doesn't ever get old, does it? Someone coming to faith, being forgiven for all of their sins and failures. Someone receiving eternal life, being brought into, to, into the one true eternal family of God. Reminds us of what the Savior has done for us. Now it never gets old. If only we would see more of that kind of thing. <clears throat> and that brings us to the third and last movement, which is itself short. And it begins that very next morning as we read in verses 35 and 36. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent the officers to the jail with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you to Silas to be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. Now we can assume that Paul and Silas had served their sentence. They were beaten they were locked in stocks. They were imprisoned for just one night. And as far as the magistrates were concerned, the matter was settled. But it wasn't. There is a small twist at the end of the story that kind of catches us by surprise. Well, we're not surprised because we've read the story so many times. We know it's there. But if you were reading this for the first time, you would say, what's this? You wouldn't have been expecting this. Verse 37. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Obviously, this is not a normal response. What is normal is a person hurrying out as quickly as possible when the prison door is open for them. They've already had more than enough of the inside of that place. That's what's normal. Not challenging the people who put you there in the first place and are now letting you out. That's not normal. But Paul was insisting on it and he got his way. And now we're at the very end of the passage in this story, which closes out with these words, verses 38 and 39. The officers reported to the magistrates and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And we know they did leave the city after, as we saw last week, Paul and Silas spent a little time encouraging the believers gathered at Lydia's house. But why did Paul insist that the magistrates, the leading officials of Philippi, no less, the, the Roman colony, and that's a big deal, 
Why did he insist they escort him and Silas from the prison? Well, I want to answer that question and the others that we raised as we made our way through the text this morning. The story we read unfolded in three movements. One thing led to another, and the story itself unites each of those three separate incidents. But there's something else that ties all of them together. And yet the story does it, but there's also a kind of a subplot, if you will, that's also unfolding with the story. It's there in that subplot that we begin to find the answers to the questions that we raise. And, and I want to take some time and look at that with you this morning. This subplot could be summarized or described this way by asking the question, what was going on in the hearts of the Christians and the others as these events unfolded? Or more simply, what were they thinking and feeling? In that first movement, a slave girl who was making a pest of herself, had a demon cast out of her. Now, we, we would expect the owners of the slave girl would be upset. They lost money on the deal. And that was bound to happen um, if Paul or any of them had done what, in fact, Paul did do, cast out that spirit. But the text tells us there were others that joined in the attack. Not everyone in the marketplace that day. But there's always those who oppose the faith. There are always those who are willing to take any opportunity afforded them to cause trouble for the believer. So the real issue revealed by the text, if you read it carefully, even for the slave owners, wasn't monetary. It was religious. Paul and his companions knew that. And they knew that trouble was coming. Paul and Silas and the others they're just being human beings. And it's important for us to know, I think. All too often, we have this stained glass idea of what the apostles and other people in the New Testament were like. As though they were near perfect, saints, in the most pretentious and artificial definition of that word. But that's not the reality. They were people just like us who wrestled with issues and, and had concerns and worries just like we do. <clears throat> Paul and the others didn't like what was happening. It had to make them uncomfortable. All that unnecessary and loud attention, it detracted from what they were trying to accomplish. But to act, to stop it, that too would cause problems. They, they were in that proverbial caught between a rock and a hard place. And I'm sure just like we would do, they kept hoping that that girl would go away on her own or our owners would come and take charge of her. But as often happens, as often is the case, the easy way out didn't happen. You've been there, haven't you? You've had some uncomfortable, or painful, or awkward situation that you felt like you should address, but you just keep putting it off, hoping against hope that it would just resolve itself. Well, that's where Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the rest of them were. But then there was also this. Probably the entire time, in the back of their minds, clamoring to be heard, was the thought, this girl needs to be set free. Set free from this evil spirit. See, unclean spirits use people like rags, and they don't dispose of them, their human host, until nothing is left. 
It is better to be free in, uh, than in bondage any day of the week. And even if that slave girl had lost all the privileges that she had, she would have at least then been her own person. So Paul finally acted. He rose to the occasion. The faith conquered his fears, his worries, his concerns. He cast the demon out and set that girl free. And the trouble came just like they thought. And then we find ourselves in the second movement. We find ourselves with Paul and Silas in prison. And now they're not just mere men, but men of faith. I hope you know what that's like too, even if you've never been in such a serious situation. Their bold act, as they acted in faith, got them severely beaten and thrown into prison. But their reaction in prison is not normal. They aren't uh, bemoaning their bad luck or complaining about how badly they've been treated or crying the injustice of it all. Instead, they are living out their faith. Instead, they're singing and they're praying. There is a joy there in that night which the walls and chains and cell doors of that prison had never seen before. There were Christians worshiping the eternal God and the forces of darkness trembled. I recently read an illustration, a story, an account of several men, a true story, that had been in prison for a number of years in the Middle East. Their only crime was believing in Jesus. Oh, they were charged with other things, none of which were true, and everyone knew it. Eventually, though, after years in prison, one by one, each of them were released. And they were so glad to be out of prison, out of that, and on their own prisons in the Middle East, like the one Paul and Silas were in, or dungeons and nothing nice about them. A year or two went by, and then the men got together for a sort of reunion. And they talked, and they shared what was going on in their lives. They told about news of their families and their churches. And then one of them said, don't you sometimes wish we were back in that prison. And they all said yes, every one of them. Not because they wanted the filth or the rotten food or the vermin or bugs or the cruelty of their crafters, but because in that place, in that prison, they felt the nearness of God. They knew, they just knew he was right beside them. And once you've experienced that, you'd pay any price to get it back. Paul and Silas couldn't help but saying God was with them in that prison cell. And then when that earthquake shook the prison, <clears throat> threw open the doors and broke the chains and all the other prisoners could have made a mad, a mad dash for the exit, none of them did. At that moment, there didn't seem to be any reason to go. God was near them in the prison cells. In peace, real peace. Deep peace can be infectious and joyful, especially when it appears in a place where no one would expect it. Paul and Silas were peaceful and joyful, and they were prisoners, they were beaten, they were mistreated, and they were singing. That's something you ever only see among Christians. In prison, people are sad were scared or defiant or claiming their innocence, but Christians can sing. <clears throat> and all that we already talked about him, and every believer knows this story, that jailer's life was changed that day. Changed by people who acted in on their faith, who were willing to take a stand and 
bear the consequences. See, doing right is always right. It's never wrong to do right. It's always the right decision. Even if bad things happen, God is able to bring good things out of it. Sometimes we get to see those good things. The jailer comes to faith, and sometimes we don't see them, and so we trust God. Maybe a few of those prisoners in that cell last night came to Christ years later. If so, then one day they'll walk up to Paul and Silas and the jailer and say, remember when you were singing in that dark prison cell? I was there, and I'm here now because of that song. You may pray a price for acting on your faith, but that act will echo in eternity. In the final movement, we see the man, Paul, man of faith, and also a Roman citizen. The sketch of the previous day's trial is recorded by Luke is short in details, but we have enough to realize that the magistrates had acted rashly. They had not applied the law appropriately in giving way instead to the accusers and the excitement of the crowds. The events had happened so quickly, uh, so quickly that Paul and Silas were not even able to protest or declare their Roman citizenship. And though the magistrates thought they were done with Paul and Silas, they soon discovered differently. When those officers delivered Paul's message to him, they were alarmed. It was that statement that they're Roman citizens that got everyone's attention. There came with Roman citizenship an enormous amount of privilege and rights. And anyone who violated your rights as a citizen, even another Roman citizen, put themselves in real jeopardy. This was no small matter. It was a serious breach of their duty. And that's why the magistrates humbled themselves and came personally to escort them out of prison. And it's also why they requested and not demanded that they leave Philippi. Now, I have to tell you, I think this is the trickiest one to decipher. You could read this and you could think, you know, Paul's just being petulant, huffy at having been so badly mistreated that he's just getting back at the magistrates. You know, Paul's still just a human being after all, and even in this story we saw as humanness. He's not a stained glass saint. He hasn't arrived yet. In fact, he's the one who wrote, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Or... Was Paul standing up for righteousness and justice here? Was he maybe even putting himself in great danger, greater danger than before? I mean, if these magistrates who were so easily swayed by the shouts of the crowd, what, what would they do when their own neck is on the line? And still, if good people don't speak up, then the wicked will win the day. There are people in our world today standing up against wicked governments and paying the price. Now, there's two things that we need to say here. First, there is no cookie-cutter approach to these things. There is no one-size-fits-all that can be applied to every situation. Sometimes, it might be better just to keep quiet and say nothing. And it seems to me that Jesus did something like that, didn't he? As a lamb before his shearers, he was silent. And second, the fact is, Paul probably was experiencing both.
the indignation of being mistreated and the righteousness that he wanted to stand for to doing what was just plain right. And although our motives are almost always mixed, it matters very much which of those are on top. Paul thinking, I don't like the way I was treated and I really don't want any trouble, but this injustice must be addressed. It's completely different than if he were thinking, these guys need to pay a price for what they did to us. And besides, it's wrong anyway. And that's our dilemma. Yours and mine when it comes to the political arena in our day. I mean, we feel deeply sense of personal indignation at so much of what's going on in our nation today. And we experience righteous indignation over the way the truth is twisted or distorted and how, how laws are not equally applied. But it matters very much which of those attitudes is on top. God understands our brokenness. But he will honor the one and not the other. And just because he honors something doesn't mean trouble might not come from it. I mean, we see that in this story. Paul and Silas were punished for setting a slave girl free. That's a situation that we as believers face in our nation today. And the only way we will ever get this right is to keep our focus on God. And remember, we have not arrived yet. You know, because of that... Knowing that we can get it right, knowing how to get it right. I believe I can tell you that Paul got it right here. In the prison, him and Silas worshiped God. He saw his hand at work even in that dark place. And it seems to me their hearts were in the right place to address the wrongs of their cultures. So I want you to know, if we want to fix our culture, we need to be right with God ourselves. We, all of us, are just human beings. We're just men and women and young people. We haven't arrived yet. And we are certainly not stained glass saints. But if we put our faith in Christ, then God's spirit lives in us. And we can rise above any situation and we can do the right thing. And by God's strength, if some trouble comes from it, we'll stand. And we're citizens of the greatest nation in the world. And the best thing we can do for this nation, the absolute best thing we can do, is be right with God ourselves. You are the light of the world. And our nation needs that light. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, thank you for um, your faithfulness to us. And Lord, the faithfulness that you've indeed shown to this nation over the years. There have been other times in our history when we were in a bad place. And in your goodness and grace, you sent a revival. And so we ask for that again today, Lord, that you would send a revival, that your people, first off, would have our hearts re-enlivened with your things, that we would be on fire for you, Lord, because that's what our nation needs. And when your people 
who called by your name humbled themselves and seek you then you bring healing to our land we can't use you as a means to an end we need to seek seek you Lord with all of our heart no matter what happens for we are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom and it's in the name of our king that we pray today 